Welcome to Varm Blog, and we're doing a late night, well, for me, podcast uh, interview-ish. Um, partly because I'm trying to Varm Blog, and we're doing a late night. Um, <laughs> partly because I was trying to respect the uh, uh, This is Revolution podcast Thursday night foreign policy show. Um, at least the the public part of it and most of the Patreon feed, maybe because I was watching it, but also because uh, a friend of mine, Camilo, uh, Camille Lowe Gomez, um, was on uh, talking about um, the situation in Peru. He'll be on my show, um, and I'm sure the focus will be different. Um so people should go check that out over at This Is Revolution. I didn't want to impede on that tonight with an unscheduled uh, discussion that was kind of evergreen. Um, this probably won't go on the podcast feed. I don't know, though. I, I, I might get a route hair up my ass. Who knows? So, uh, so it'll always go on the Patreon podcast feed because everything goes there including like every scrap of everything that's ever been taken off the internet with my name on it. But, um, um, but yeah. So Jeremy and I wanted, well, I asked Jeremy earlier today if he wanted to come on and talk about, you know, rhetorical inflation, um, the problems with rhetorical inflation why I think it's particularly bad actually when the stakes are lowest is when you see the most rhetorical inflation. So the further removed people are from actual power or an actual movement, or as a movement starts to fade, um, what you begin to see is the rhetoric around it becoming more and more outlandish. Um, now, I think people realize this in regards to right-wing movements. Um, for example, uh, the alt-right was most powerful in its internet presence actually during the Obama years when things felt defeated, and a lot of it started out as a kind of trolling. Um, now, that you know that thesis often propelled by pre-2018 Angela Nagel, um, is overly simplified. There was right-wing movements, you know, trying to capitalize on this for years. They had been specializing their message. You know, um, Richard Spencer had been trying to get on the millennial Gen X rebranding of racism for a long time, actually. The alt-right was his preferred way to make right-wing thought cool again, and he got that from Paul Gottfried, who denounced him later. <laughs> um Oh, he did? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when he suggested the moniker. Uh, and, then, and then actually, ironically, um, the alt-right had a split in 2012 with the original members going off to be different racist and Spencer forming the, the racist journal Red X, as in radical. Um and then when liberals started using the moniker again, he actually reclaimed it. Um, what I found interesting about that is the Trump movement actually recuperated in the way that we normally see happen to far left movements 
a lot of the rhetoric of the alt-right incorporated it, but effectively also, I mean, I, I know liberals don't like this. Um, and a lot of leftists don't like me saying this, but effectively killed a lot of it. Um, channeled it into more mainstream conservatism where it could be tamed. Um, now, it also pushed the mainstream conservatives further to the right in their rhetoric. But what they actually did as a ruling party was pretty consistent with what Republicans had done, with the exception of being a little bit nastier at the border. And um, all of a sudden losing all faith in free markets in regards to tariffs. Um, and they weren't even consistent on that. So... It was a, rhetor a rhetorical shift that had substance to believers in the movement. And I'm not going to say it had no political effect, but if you tried to count down what Trump got done and looked at what was unique to Trumpism and not part of the larger Republican movement, I think he got maybe two things done. And then the, the, the most wild rhetoric and accusations um also came at the moment where Trump was clearly losing and we've seen this double down in um right wing circles now where again we have this core 30% 40% of republicans who are you know into qAnon conspiracies and this that, and the other and the left is really worried about that and maybe they should be but it's also a sign of social breakdown and that their stakes are low that there's very little that they can do. And what people haven't noticed is high money donors have largely abandoned them. Now, why is this important for us? I was reading, um, I was, uh, my friends over at regrettable century podcast on their Patreon, um, group, cause we all are buskers now. Um, we're doing a re a reading of Nile commun of 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 nihilist communism by Monsieur uh, Monsieur Dupont. Well, that's um, how that's how actually that's how you pronounce that. I was wondering. Um, so, um, well, you don't trust me. I'm pronouncing anything French, but I'm pretty okay. sure that's how you pronounce that. <laughs> um, so. What what I what I find I find that book infuriating in parts and and actually also very useful in parts. I always tell people to read it, but don't accept all of its arguments. Um, but there's one section where they talk about how real world interventions in leftism had declined rapidly from the 90s to the aughts into more and more online focuses and. And they were saying this in 2003 and 2009, you know, hmm. um, which means they hadn't seen how how much, you know, the breakaway from Occupy and all that would reconsolidate into online activism. And as Bernie has died down, we've seen left Twitter go ridiculous. Yep. And in fact, you know. The more outlandish a tweet is, the more likely it is to go viral, right? And there's a mutually conducive uh, feedback loop there. Pandemic did not help this. Absolutely not. Um, now, I don't want to sound like Ezra Klein or anything, but I actually don't think 
this is a good thing because I don't think it's actually substantive substantive radicalism. You know, um, it's more like frenetic. It's more like manifesting anxiety and kind of disconnection. Would you say? Yeah, it's kind of a sign of of alienation and taking a political movement, which I think necessarily would not be um, would not be as I've been trying to get people to think about the fact if their politics totally reflect their moral and personal identity, it probably is an indication that their politics actually aren't manifesting anything. <laughs> like the mm. more that you're devoted to to politics as a source of identity and not as something that is doing stuff for change actively. Um, what does that, you know, where does that leave us? Right? Like, like it leaves us in a place where we use these, we attach our political identity more and more to things that we used to attach to other other kinds of communal forms, but we do so actually at a moment in which our politics is dying. Um, and I say this because also you see this paralleled in religious movements. As religious movements decline and grow smaller, their adherents, uh, their adherents, excuse me. Um, how much their adher their adherents adhere to the faith? Yeah, well, it's not that. Yeah, the, their adherents become well. They just also become more wild in their interpretations and more extreme. Look at white evangelicals right now. All right, they're they're hemorrhaging members left and right, but they become more and more reactionary because the only people who would stay are people who've invested enough identity to continue to escalate the rhetoric as a means of preserving their their religious identity since everything else seems to be going against it now we've seen as we've seen this we've also seen evangelicalism decline from one of the fastest growing religious movements in in modern history and the developed world to one of the most fastly hemorrhaging people religious movements in the development world if we're talking specifically about white and probably Asian adherence to the religion in the developed world and not including China where things are a little bit more complicated. Mm. Um, so rhetorical inflation tends to be at a time when your access to power and your ability to have stakes goes away. That's also when like we tend to use rhetorical inflation to police more. I mean, yes, you always have to police your movement. I mean, I don't. I'm not one of those people who thinks you don't. Like, there's always infiltrators. There's always this, that, and the other. But you'll find that this gets the most intense and the most sectarian when things are on rapid decline. Uh, people always talk about the Black Panthers, but they don't talk about the Black Panthers of the late '70s and 1980s. And the reason why is it just they just go into shitstorms of mutual accusations, particularly after the news, you know, falls out about what what happened in the late 60s so everybody becomes more and more paranoid but they also just start doubling down on kinds of politics that are more and more removed from you know the like the broad spectrum you know um 
socialist unity, black unity politics of the Panthers in their high point. Now, there were always divisions within the Panthers about, you know, how racially nationalist they were going to be, how socialist they were going to be, what kind of communists they were. The Maoists tend to win out, but they were never particularly sectarian Maoists. Mm. Um, but that didn't really matter as they got more and more removed. Um, furthermore, you also saw like a lot of people who were engaged in like community defense leagues became literal street gangs. You know, we see that with the FARC. We've also, we also saw it with the Crips whose origins were a community defense, a youth community defense league set up, set up by someone who thought they were emulating the Panthers. Oh, wow. That, that I did not know. Okay. That's an interesting bit of history. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Where's this? this Huki. So, that, yeah, and that's not something that's commonly discussed. Um, there's only one book I found on it. It's actually by one of the, by Stanley Tuki Williams. Um, and, you know, they, they started out um, in 1969. They were actually battling neighborhood street gangs. Um, but they started trying to, uh, um, recruit as a kind of like community defense socialist boy scouts because of the relationship of like the Royals in Chicago who had left their street gang origins into the Panthers the, the Crips kind of came out of a similar thing. They were trying to get out of their shrink oranges and become like a youth league for the Panthers, but they were trying to fund themselves off of drug sales and they got increasingly divorced from their goals. Um, I mean, it's kind of a cautionary tale, right? I actually laughed at the Adam Curtis documentary because they chose the let's talk about Tupac's mom getting into crack uh, art, article when they were going up, when they were talking about the Panthers and the relationship to gang culture and didn't even mention because I'm sure Adam Curtis didn't do enough research to know mm. that there was a both kind of less racist and more direct um, relationship than was being portrayed. Right. Um, and, you know, again, the Panthers never claimed the Crips. It was not it it was an attempt by someone sympathetic to do something to carry on the legacy. Um, but, it, you know, it just kind of bombed. So, but the accusations about whether or not some people should be racial nationalists or communists became increasingly divisive in the Panthers themselves, and they eventually dissolved over it in the 80s. And what I, even I didn't realize is how late that dissolution happened. I thought it was like in the middle seventies. Right. But it was like, how late? After, it was really late. Wow. Well, no, how, how far into, if they dissolved in the Reagan era, how far into the Reagan era did they finally like break up? Cause I, I know that up in here and up here in Portland, the local chapter of the BPP had their free breakfast and free medical clinics work, you know, operational until like shit until like the early eighties or so. I'm not quite sure. Let me actually um, double check that here. Uh, do, 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 do. 
Um, so the Black Panther political party dissolved in 1982. So the beginning of the of the party. However, there a lot of their orgs were ran by organizations that kind of assumed their membership. And then there was a bunch of people who claimed the mantle. There were the New Black Panther Party, the New African Black Panther Party. The New African Black Panther Party is kind of the more legitimate error. The New Black Panther Party is a split from the Nation of Islam and has like no relationship to historical Panthers. Yeah. Um which was which, um, which of the of these splits were the ones that showed up in a God? What was, was this last year or a couple of years ago? But I remember there they was one that showed up. I think it was in Philly or someplace much farther east than us, where they showed up and like was a full on. Oh, it was a full on like you know like Instagram like photo shoot, and where they claimed that they were they were the new version of it, and it was like it was like some split. It was during it was right during the end of Black Lives Matter, and it was a very small split. Okay. Um, I don't remember what they are because they all have Black Panther Party in their name and there's with slight variations, but it was not the new Black Panther Party or the new African Black Panther Party or any of the other um, different splits from the Panthers. So, um, but anyway, to get back to this rhetorical inflation problem, like, so one of the things that we see is that accusations and policing becomes more intense, partly because you do start seeing real deviations in the down period, people, people losing faith, people grifting people, but you know, that's real, but you, the, those, those points of like real, you know, infiltration or reaction become flashpoints for like trying to find people. You know, I always talk about the Kirov murders, you know, um, a murder. Um, when Kirov was murdered, Stalin, you know, starts this ever expanding thing that really like accelerates the purges. And in the West, we always assumed that it was a naked grab for power that Stalin had Kirov murdered. But most um, Sovietologists now, including ones who are right wing, will just say, no, it does not look like Stalin did that. There's literally no evidence in the archives that he had Kirov killed. Um, it may he may have cynically used it, but it had a ripple effect. Right. Mm. Um, and reading what I have read about Stalin, um, it seems like he really thought that a lot of the people that he was going after were actual threats, whether or not he thought they were what the threats that he said they were like, you know, I don't think he believed that Zinoviev was a fifth colonist, but you know, he did think that there were real threats going on. Um, and you know, what does that say? Um, it says that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Right. I mean, to quote a certain uh, long past Pacific Northwest poet. Um, I don't think he really believed Bakarin was guilty. I think he believed Bakarin was inexpedient, but it it's, um, it's neither here nor there. Um, these things have their own life. I mean, one of the things that you can say about the purges is that they were broadly speaking popular um, because there was a lot of resentment. 
um, of people lower in the in the USSR at Bolshevik leadership. There really was, just like a lot of the uh, a lot of the cultural revolutions, which their purges are more complicated. They rarely outright executed people for one thing. Um, a lot of tons of people died mostly from suicide. Um, one of the ironies of this is right is like, they're supposedly trying to fight Confucianism, but Confucianism is the, is, is the shame based culture that is encouraging a lot of these people to kill themselves. So, um, that's not always true. Like Lu Xiaoqi is, is done real dirty. You know, he's imprisoned and not given um, his uh, his diabetic medication and basically allowed. He wasn't executed, but all but, you know, and so there was a lot of that, too. But oh, it wow. was ironically a consolidation of power, but it was also broadly popular because there was anger at the leadership in the Communist Party popularly. Um, you know, and it's it's hard to disaggregate what's cynical in that and what is kind of blind populist rage yeah also uh one thing that actually that, that does a, a question that pops up is can you talk about the connection or because you mentioned the popularity of what you could call i guess we could we could safely call that state terror of how does the the popularity of state terror or you know, purges and shit connect up with say the popularity of terror that showed up in a, in a certain uh, earlier revolution that happened, uh, uh, you know, a few uh, time zones west of there about a hundred year, hundred years earlier. I think it's very similar. I mean, I think I think there's a certain amount of of popular excess that really does happen. Um, one of the things that it does, though, I mean, if you look, if you map out what it tends to do is you always see a declaiming our conservative backlash to it. Um, now, I don't I actually don't think like Khrushchev was necessarily a conservative backlash, but he was a liberalizing one. And for those who think that the other faction wasn't intended to do that, Beria actually had an even more radical liberalizing denouncing Stalin plan, even though he was the primary henchman. Like that's one of the few things that Defo Stalin actually gets historically right. Mm. So, um, so there was a lot of the, a lot of whatever was going to happen after, you know, Stalin died. Um, while the purges were broadly speaking popular, the results of the purges, the, in the overstretch of the purges were not, um, you know, and, you know, I'll give you the example that in the, so in the Soviet case is like purging most of your military and having to bring a fourth of them back after accusing them of being Nazis so that they can fight survey says Nazis. Like that really happened. Also secret armament deals with Nazis made by Stalin that also really happened. So who's the fifth columnist there? Stalin himself. I mean, like the, uh, it's it's easy to have a moral high horse about this. Like you can also take this in a totally silly anti-communist route. Um, but it's important to look at why something being kind of popular or, or people getting in on a popular sentiment does not necessarily mean that the broader agenda was accepted by most people who thought it was popular or that when the results came in, when people actually had to process the results of the terror 
and how far it went and who it got that the backlash wasn't immediate from some of the same people who supported it. You know, like, yeah. oh, no, what have we done? Right. And I, I mean, I think we see this in trigger mobs all that. This is why the council culture dialogue. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the council culture dialogue is anything like this. I'm just saying that the, the, the basic like social dynamics rhyme. And what I mean by that? Well, canceling people in so much that it actually happens, it's broadly speaking popular. Yeah, it is mass mass denunciation and shunning and ostracism only not quite going to the extent of uh you no know one i don't think anyone wants to kill anybody well yeah, generally they don't want to kill anybody yeah, we're not quite to the to the to the extent of firing squad right yet. but i mean like for example I, I i think the cultural revolution stuff brought up by current like conservatives and even some marxists right now about cancel culture is ridiculous but i will say that like the cultural revolution actually even though tons of people died in it there weren't a lot of firing squads. There just weren't. You know, it was mostly social shaming to the extreme and suicide. Hmm. And then fights between factions afterwards that had a high body count that were allowed to happen without government intervention. There were executions. And there were, but like, the, the, most of them weren't done by the states. Like if you see some, like when you hear about people getting thrown, you know, getting drowned and thrown off bridges and stuff like that. That's just popular mob violence. It's actually very similar, not even to bring up the French Revolution. It's very similar to what happened in the American Revolution. Um, this is not to say that it's a justification. I actually think these excesses of revolution are something that revolutionaries themselves have to tamp down on if, if we were ever in that kind of situation. Because they often, they exhaust themselves. Right. Like yeah, the it, it, you know they they burn themselves out. Can you give an example? Uh, uh, can you give an an American example? How me? many like loyalists did we tar and feather? Literally, yeah, literally. And how many of them died? Quite a bit. The American Revolution, partly in the context of it was a war, and partly of the context is actually the popular support was more divided, was more bloody. Then the French Revolution, um, then the French Revolution's terror. The bloodiest part of the French Revolution is often not talked about. And when people defend the French Revolution as less bloody than the American Revolution, they do so by excluding the war and the Vendee. Yeah. Um, a great book about like the beginning of total war that uh, that talks about that as uh, predating modern conceptions of total war as beginning from like the, from when like Napoleon is actually setting up and gallivanting around europe and shit yeah i mean i think i think i think the beginnings of total war actually come out of the english the english civil war and the war in the vendee and the american revolution and, and then mm -hmm. i was gonna say there is a i can i can't remember who wrote it but there is a great book i know i just know that it's you, you can get it on your kindle uh just something like you know myths of the american revolution that actually gets into talking about how how much of the american revolution was a civil war where you had and like you at some point you didn't even um i think this is probably more of a like a, of a mid-south thing but like there are certain regions of like the borderlands in tennessee where you had uh domestically born 
I mean, you, you didn't even have there were there were no British troops there whatsoever, or not even British officers. You had loyalist versus revolutionary officers and uh, and troops just blasting the shit out of each other. Well, my favorite example of this is the South. It's one of my complications to Gerald Horn's Counter Revolution of 1776 thesis because he is always talking about how um, indigenous groups and free black slaves were supporting the British Empire because it had a more progressive stance, which it kind of did it, it i mean it's it, it, yeah. um like the stance is what was the somerset ruling which actually happens before some of the american revolutions initial i mean after some of the american revolutions initial stuff happened so this is one of the things where i actually think objectively some of the critiques of horn are correct um but the somerset revolution um that revolution revolution the somerset ruling is that slavery shouldn't happen on british soil because no black slaves should breathe british air like it's a it's you know it's a objectively you know um emancipa uh, emancipationist argument but made from a racist stamp which actually was true for a lot of the abolitionist movement before 1830 um, but even more so, I mean, they didn't like the Caribbean slave trade wasn't abolished for like 30 more years and I was still in British control, um, or 40 more years. Um, so I, um, I find that overstated. And the other thing I find though, goes back to what you're saying is the South, the slaveholding South was the hotbed of loyalist outside of the Canadian border. So a lot of the loyalist forces were Southerners who were slavers, um, which complicates a lot of the like clean revolution, counter-revolution narrative of, you know, people wanting to argue for the revolution being, you know, a, a unilaterally good thing or against it, you know, in the Gerald Horn way. Right. Um, I mean, Horn does make some good arguments in the book. I tell people to read it, but you need to read it with, with some more context and complications because there's stuff I think he's objectively kind of wrong about. Um, Real quick, we're just to define, let's, let's, can we define uh, in this, in, in these terms, um, what meant the South by this point? Because are you talking about more of like the Carolinas, which was more of like a. The Carolinas and Georgia. Okay, so yeah, which 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 is not Tidewater and uh, Virginia and uh, in the Mid South, which to you know to go off of Colin Co Woodward Woodard, well, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, uh, Colin Woodard's uh, kind of like eleven nations. Yeah, but he considers the Carolinas and the Deep South kind of part of like the more reactionary part of Tidewater. Mm -hmm. um, Although he talks about their Scotch Irishness being a complication. I mean, and I, I find that somewhat interesting because the history of the Carolinas and the history of Georgia are actually diametrically opposed. The Carolinas start off as slavery states. Georgia starts off as a weird utopian prison colony that is anti-slavery. And I mean, then yeah, I it was like a buffer thing between between the Carolinas and Florida, which was Spanish. That's so that's also part of it. That's the reason. So whenever you talk about the origins of some of these states, the origins of something politically, you can't be unilaterally reductionist on it, right? Um, so I have a correction. Somerset was predicated on slavery being against common law and requiring an enactment under positive law, which already existed in the United States, so it wouldn't have applied anyway. Hmm. But the, the the actual ruling wording is as racist as I said it was. Um, so... Um, 
here's one of the things I'm going to like parse a little bit on on Georgia because I know it really well. The crown let Oglethorpe set up a weird utopian prison colony as a reform colony that had an everybody but the but the Catholics as a buffer state, but it was anti-slavery explicitly in its charter. In the, um, for the entire state? It wasn't a state yet. It was just a colony of Oglethorpe. Or just a territory outside of... The, yeah, it's the territory of Oglethorpe. It's the territory of, around Savannah and Savannah, extending yeah. out... Extend, because I think Carolina was still claiming a whole lot of what is now Georgia. Okay. And also, it theoretically extended all the way out to the ocean. But... The, I mean by the other ocean. But no one ever enforced that. Um, it's a long walk. What happened is basically they couldn't that Oglethorpe couldn't outproduce Charleston and they had regular bouts of malaria and then they gave up and then the Oglethorpe um, charter was abolished and it just became a regular southern state. And immediately, like the rest of the colonies, including some of the other ones, started bringing in slaves in mass. Malaria um, outbreaks are not something they teach you about in American history class. It's kind of always like an uh, it's an over there problem, if you will. It's it's funny because like that was literally one of the arguments for bringing in black slaves is like oh the the indigenous slaves have you know the we we didn't enslave the indigenous people here most of them already died from pox right. um and including pox before we even got here frankly yeah. um blame the spanish for that yeah and um and so we can't enslave them and we've kind of made charters with them and we're going to kind of respect that uh also we die of malaria i guess black people don't if you read the letters that's how that's how they justify it hmm. um so they get they give up on their utopian anti-slavery charter and just become a standard southern slavery state um that is Cited as why Georgia was one of the the southern states that was really weird on a stance towards succession. It actually technically opposed it till South Carolina did it and then flipped. Um, I don't know how true that is. I've read a lot of documents uh, on Georgia history to try to because I've always like I really want to understand the Civil War because I think it's really important in the American consciousness and I think the Southern re you know recuperatists are lying. But I also kind of think the northern progressivist narrative on it's also a lie. So like, yeah, shit was a lot messier and a lot more complicated and a lot less salutatory yeah. than uh, than uh, uh, we like to think. So oh, we're going off history changers. I was going to talk about. Oh, yeah, but okay. remember, we're talking about uh, uh, rhetorical, <laughs> rhetorical inflation and declining states. The declining stakes. I actually think that you can see uh, the South is another place where you see this. As Southern identity is less and less important in the beginning of the 20th century, that's actually when you see this neo-Confederate shit really kick up. You don't see it even after the ending of Reconstruction. In the beginning of the Jim Crow laws, you see it in the 1920s. Yeah, when do like the daughters of the daughters of the Confederacy and all that kind of shit really? When does that really kick off? Like the, uh, yeah, the daughters of the Confederate. They used to run a a cemetery near where I lived, and um, I would literally laugh that they, that they made their liberal concession of changing. 
the pamphlets at the cemetery from the war of Northern aggression to the war between the States. That was the, uh, that was their progressive move. Um, but anyway, the daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, daughters of the Confederacy were found in 1926 after the beginnings of the second clan in, two th in, in 1900. So funny how that works out. And people were like, well, hey, we take, we take down all these cheap ass, shitty sub bronze statuary we're fucking up our own history blah 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 but yeah yeah even though that you know sub bronze statuary is all from like the 30s yeah um what's interesting is that's also when you see the, the the you know the the grand unity narrative come more and more up in america I mean, you particularly see it after wilson um it's a very popular narrative and it's one that, quote, progressives held, unquote. This was not a conservative-only rallying point at all. Um, was this because they were, like, trapped in dunning school shit, too? Or is it just, like, it was almost like, you know, this kind of, like, I dare I call it, like, interwar consensus? It was interwar consensus even by people like Dewey. I mean, I've, I've been reading Lash's first book, which is on the 1920s progressive radicals. So that's, like, Dewey, um, Jane Addams... Um, uh, Rudolph, fuck, I don't remember, uh, Lincoln Stevens. Um, right. and man, do those guys look bad. I mean, Dewey looks real bad, but the whole pragmatist thing yeah. comes up and like, we have to pragmatically preserve the union. And that means making concessions to, to the South, to Southern elites in specific, because the other thing that people have to remember is the South went from being the most concentrated part of, of the wealth of the United States was in the hand of the planter class and the planter class alone. Um, they were the richest people in the colonies until, until about 10 years before the civil war. Um, but the, um, the South as part of, of post reconstruction policy was deliberately not allowed to industrialize. And when it was allowed to industrialize, it was only allowed to industrialize in textiles. Now, I don't know what people know about textiles, but we associate textiles with the shittiest parts of capitalism for a reason that's not new. Yeah, Manchester, um, Manchester and Ingalls and shit like that, yeah. Yeah, Born, thank you, Rudolph Born. Yeah. <laughs> um, was that after Birth of a Nation? It was right before, actually. But all this is around the same time. Yeah. So... So the progressives do not oppose, do not necessarily oppose this, and particularly because they're so tied to Wilson. Um, this is oh, this is true at the national at the New Republic. It's true at the at the nation even, um, because Dewey has his whole four way into getting you know American Marxists back in the liberal consensus. That's what the nation was designed for. That's part of why Dewey was part of his co uh, collaborative board, and. All these things sort of happen. Well, what you see in the South is Southern identity is dying during this part. It's also when Southern identity moves, for, like Southerners, if you look at Kansas or even Georgia prior to the 1940s, um, the populist movements had strong Southern support. You had populist governors who were often reactionary but who had strong positions on labor, you know, coming out of the South. I keep on, I always mention, I mentioned this for about 10 years now. Explain to me how William Jennings Bryant, who economically was the most progressive person in the Democratic Party, was literally, also literally the uh, a fusion candidate, if you would. Yeah. 
I mean, like, you know, he's trying to bridge this. He's trying to get the socialists and the populists back into the Democrats and also arguing for like money devaluation and stuff like that through changing yeah. the metal standards. Um, but he's also one. He's a radical anti-science person and a fundamentalist. But one of his reasons for being a fundamentalist is he was afraid that Darwinism would lead to the devaluation of black people. <laughs> Funny how that worked out. Yeah, I know. But I mean, like, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, the logic that we reread in the even in the early 20th century onto pre-FDR politics is wrong. It's just wrong. Like, you can't understand the progressive and conservative movements by the liberal left and, and liberal right of today. You, you really can't. Before the 19... Before the 1950s, really. Yeah. Uh, how much of this, because I'm reminded of something that I think William Hoagland wrote talking about, um, uh, I think, I think uh, a piece in, I don't even know, remember where he wrote it, but he was, he was writing about talking about like a going against consens consensus history, but talking about how like it was this, there was this definite uh, move during like the early Kennedy years to go against both like reactionary, but also like, you know, Charles Beard leftist inspired history. Yeah. Uh, this like, this like naive ass, uh, uh, liberal, you know, uh, I think if Kennedy had not, if Kennedy had not have been shot, we would have, we would consider him the first neoliberal. One of the things he did was lower the marginal tax rates dramatically. Right. Um, but, but, but how about, yeah, how much of this, but how much of this, this era fucks with our own history of uh, views of history? Totally does. There's a, there's kind of a deliberately rewriting, uh, of history. Like it's not just Nixon doing the Southern strategy. All right. It's also the Democrats trying to erase their own history, which was, which people forget until this, until Nixon had completed the Southern strategy, the Democrats had no idea what to do with because they were maintaining all the segregationist. Hell, I keep on telling people this, but like, like in Georgia, the Dixiecrats never lost. They just changed parties in 2000 and 2001. They literally flipped their, flipped their D to R resignations and a lot of them died in office. I was saying, I thought that was more of like a 1948 thing, but yeah. No, I mean it, it happened. It happened the first time in 1948, again in 1961. I mean, like, there's a reason why Joe Biden will get all gushy-eyed about when Strom Thurmond was still a Democrat. Yeah. Um, that's the 60s and 70s, and then like, it didn't happen at the state level for local political machines until the 2000s, and there were deals made between the Black Caucus and the outgoing Democrats to like give some of the political machine to the Black Caucus. It, for exchange for keeping progressive votes limited to black areas. Was there a difference between uh, all of the Kennedy people versus the Johnson people? Yes, there was tensions between the Kennedy people versus the Johnson people. And, 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 and eventually, because like Johnson shows up and like, and that's, I think, because I can remember me being a, a Matt, <laughs> I got a, I got a, one of my undergrad degrees is in aerospace engineering. Um, I can remember, and I actually did go to space camp when I was 13. Cause I can remember learning about how I think it was, uh, 
very early on that the spa- the American space program was Johnson's attempt to do a Marshall plan on the American South. So that's one of the things that I was always wondering about is how did uh, all of Johnson LBJ's people like think about this kind of thing versus like all of Kennedy's people, even, you know, yes, even though there was like a lot of overlap. I think there was a lot of overlap and I think Johnson Johnson's uh, positions were closer to the more pr- traditional progressive FDR ring of the party. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why I do think like we associate, we don't want to attribute FDR policies to Johnson, um, even though we tend, uh, and by that, I mean, things we associate with the new deal, but are actually part of the great society. Yeah, great society. Um, Cause I've, I've pointed out all uh, like so much of what people think is new deal has nothing to do with the new deal. Yeah. Um, but all these great society programs, go ahead. As they say, the past isn't even past. <laughs> right. Um, as Faulkner says, another good Southerner, right? Yeah. Um, well, or a bad Southerner. Actually, he was both a good Southerner and a bad Southerner, depending on the day. Um, but yeah, um, and, and, uh, and the amount of uh, mint juleps consumed. By yes. Uh, and it, like a diehard anti-racist one minute and then kind of a normal bigot in his private life the next, but that wasn't totally uncommon for uh, Southern progressives either. Our progressives in general, let's be honest. Mm. Um, it's like kind of how, even though I don't love the, the To Kill a Mockingbird, I actually think the 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 release of the, the, the first book actually was written. Um, the rough draft that was published, if you could say. Yeah. But I think it's more accurate about what Atticus would have been. Mm. I mean, like that, that a lot of those uh, law and justice, even fair trials for black people, liberals were also diehard racist and clan members. So yeah, they were just the, the, the side that believed in the rule of law. Um, Go back to rhetorical inflation, back to rhetorical inflation. Well, my point about all the Southern stuff okay. is that, you see the rhetoric becoming more and more pronounced at times where it's le- where it's the least relevant. It becomes a dead identity. There's no politics really attached to it. This is why people don't see any until very recently when I was growing up, people saw no inconsistency flying a U.S. and Confederate flag at the same time. Um, we've brought up Savannah. Uh, I was recently in Savannah for my brother's wedding uh, at a place about eight miles, no, yeah, about eight miles outside of town at a uh, at a farm slash RV park. Uh, upon driving into the place, which again, RV parks, a lot of RVs there, on one of the flagpoles is a Union Jack and a Gadsden flag. So you have the big UK flag underneath that, the little snaky don't tread on me. That's on funny. The same, on the same flagpole. That was interesting. That I got. I that I had to take a picture of. That's like when I was out here in Utah and saw a Confederate flag on someone's car, and someone was claiming it was local heritage, and I was like, <laughs> "Interesting, interesting views of history." Okay, I mean, yes, there is the there. Okay, so one thing people don't know is the territory of Dixie in southern Utah was a slaveholding territory, um, but it was never part of the Confederacy. And it didn't exist for very long. And it actually wasn't part of the Mormons either. It was like this weird outgrowth of Texas. 
Um, as, so, uh, as, uh, can you flash up Robert's comment real quick? My right. uh, as a uh, comment to Robert says, my grandpa had a Confederate flag, a California flag, and an Oklahoma flag in his yard. Which is, if that's not a Woody Guthrie song, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's a uh, that's an Okie from Muskogee. I don't know. Um, with, a, with yeah, <laughs> it's a long roundabout trip. <laughs> Who lives and dies in Dixie? I guess. Um, I, I find this all, all very somewhat tedious, but I, I do want to point out that like, politically speaking, this whole like Neo Southern, the Southerners are really dominating us narrative that you see from liberals is laughable actually. Um, yeah, there was God, how much of, how much talk was there during the W years of like people talking about how like the presidency was, you know, was pretty much had become a uh, entirely a southern thing. Since, yeah, yeah, just like for you know, and it, I would it, point out that like W was from Connecticut. He was just the Texas. He was like he moved to to, to Texas for political reasons and learned the accent. Uh, H.W. was from New England, and we, <laughs> that's the thing we, we uh, that people forget is that. Both H.W. and Barbara Bush were uh, shit. They were on the board of like Planned Parenthood for a while. Right. One of the one of the things that I did that I do think was valid from Colin Woodard's American Nations book was pointing out the difference between uh, New England Republicans versus like Sunbelt and like, you know, Southern and Texas Republicans, you know, you uh, the, which is why, you know, the father was different from the son, if you will. Right. Although I would also say that, like, living in Utah and then going back to the South, there's a big difference between Sunbelt Western and Sunbelt Southern, too. Like, there's a huge difference. Um, uh, Sunbelt Southern is more authoritarian, like, but also kind of more efficient. Not going to lie. Um, way more populist in its rhetoric, mm. way less conciliatory. Some, uh, Sunbelt Western is way more libertarian. They kind of they kind of really don't believe in government, and uh, and when they do believe in government, it's like good people doing nice things in local communities. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I find all this very interesting, and it explains a lot of like the cultural milieu you have to navigate when dealing with these different factions. But I also find that a lot of the times when we're talking about this area, it's like the South is still the poorest area in the United States. Yeah. Like either, which is, I think, uh, what Mississippi, Arkansas is still the number one, number two. Yeah. yeah and gotcha. yeah, it, 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 it's still super poor. And then the next poorest area is the Midwest, which is interesting where you have the most reactionaries and also where frankly, all the core of these like BLM, um, tennis unions, a lot of left activism comes out of the cities in these areas, because not only are they color, which they are, they've also seen a hundred years of shit. Yep. Like in St. Louis. Yeah. Kansas city, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Chicago, all those cities have known nothing but decline in the 20th century. Hmm. Detroit. <laughs> I was just yeah. wearing my Detroit versus everybody shirt earlier. Um, I visited your home state recently and was, uh, because my partner's from there and, um, Please say uh, you had you you availed yourself to the local White Castle delicacies while you were there. I, I had White Castle and I had crystals because I've had neither in a while. 
Awesome. Uh, Crystals are still better because I'm Southern and I do have regional loyalty. And in this area, I will only be, this is the only area in which I'm chauvinist, but Southern food is better than the Western food. Fight me on it. That's the thing thing about, uh, I miss about living in the Pacific Northwest is that uh, we don't have, uh, we don't have massive thunderstorms. We don't have fireflies and we don't have uh, um, White Castle. Also, and you don't, don't, and you also don't have a regional ripoff version of White Castle either. You don't have crystals, so yeah. And we don't, we also, we don't have white, we don't have Waffle House. And goddamn, if if not having a Waffle House is a, uh, yeah, we we have IHOP. Like there's an IHOP, like I don't know, like five miles that way. So but that fence against ahead. civilization. Yeah, I mean, I'll eat, I'll eat, I'll, I'm, I say that I'll eat IHOP out here, but whenever I go back to the south, I deliberately give myself heartburn by going to Waffle House. Yeah. Um, Ask Ben Burgess about this too. He's got stories about that. But anyway, um, <laughs> you want to talk about the the, the mix of Midwest versus uh, Georgia? Yeah, that's a, ben, ben and I. My theory that Ben and I are like we're born and split um, into like I am the dark shadow Ben because he like went from the Midwest into Georgia and I've been all over the Midwest, but I'm from the South, and you know. Um, have, you, uh, have you seen Best of Enemies? Which was the uh, yeah the documentary that I I helped uh, Ben show uh, show to his Patreon crowd yeah was the, the whole thing about how yeah God William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal really were kind of the same kind of uh, yeah oh yeah dark mirror images I wouldn't say that I'm Ben's I mean I'm Ben's dark mirror image on the same political spectrum I'm just on a different end of it um, do you get down with fried okra I used to grow my own okra here in Utah so I could fry it awesome. Um, so anyway, I find this interesting because one of the things I've seen as Bernie has faded and as the left in America really doesn't know what to do in terms of Biden, it has no idea. Like we've seen waves of like, Biden's going to save us. Oh no, he's not Force the vote. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to follow everything that, that, that the squad says every five minutes. Oh, no, never mind. It's not mattering at all one way or the other. And as you've seen that, you've seen, let's t- have a stupid fight about Stalin one more time. Or, you know, um, let's, uh, let's debate cancel culture for the 85th time. And some of us will will say that it's super important and other of us will pretend it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. like just arguments to be had. Yeah. The, I, I, you, you mentioned that this is one of the Christmas points that you agree with. And I actually agree with this, although I think, you know, I don't, I, I think there are many things where Christmas and I really disagree, but so much of this discourse exists to have a discourse about. Yeah. Like, it's because we don't have anything to do, and we're not. It's similarly to uh, pro wrestling. It's almost like a form of kayfabe of like conjuring up issues uh, over which to justify having matches, and you know, come coming up with you know we, we okay shit we need to have you know we we need to have a big title match at WrestleMania, so let's have let's you know come up with some is some some angle between our two stars that they can fight you know over uh you know through several pay-per-views and several weekly shows until they finally have their big blow-off match at wrestlemania 
uh, again, all leftists really need to understand pro wrestling and kayfabe. I've said this, I, I, which is something I've been like staking, uh, staking a lot of my own minor re reputation uh, for years. That, yeah, this. Uh, uh, I need a podcast. Uh, Little Toaster said, "I need a podcast on how to organize in reality." Check out the Rebel Steps podcast out of, I believe, Vancouver. It is done by a couple anarchists up there, but there's a lot of great, like, one-on-one stuff up there. Very, very basic one-on-one stuff that I think is extremely useful for a lot of people, and I think a lot, a lot more people need to start be putting out one-on-one. Uh, you know, basic how to's on this stuff because we, um, there's way we, too many how to's on theory, honestly. And I say yeah, this yeah. is a person who does theory all the time, but well, I mean, not just like theory, but it's always like how to's on just like basic, like talking to people and like how to form, not just like, you know, well, I mean, as you said, when you came on my show four years ago, it's like leftists need to read more history than theory, which is, you know, growing increasingly true. But, oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right, Jeremy. In fact, I mean, one of the points, you know, Michael Brooks and I have many disagreements in, in his life, but we, we both actually agreed that we needed to write like self-help for Marxist. Um, not because we believe in the self-help industry, because I don't, but I, I am like, read Robert Greene's Rules of Power. Don't buy into the ideology of them, but understand how people work and use personal power. Like you need to know it, even if you're not going to do it that way. I actually think actually following all of Robert's uh, Robert Greene's rules of power is a good way to like fail. But mm. but um, each one of them can be um, useful. I also think that part of the problem with left culture, be it call out culture, which I, I think is more an apt thing than than cancel culture for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, is one of the interesting things about these uh, rhetorical inflation debates. Call-out culture came also from a time in which the left was growing in popularity, but also, even though we had an abstentionally left-wing Democratic president, had no real recourse to power at all. And that kind of led to Bernie, honestly. But it also came from a time where a lot of the debates were trying to reestablish and, and, and reset limits within the left-wing community that have been dormant for a long time. And with people who were taking standards and practices that came out of academia, but have been mass distributed now through blogging, yeah. um, decontextualized often people blame Tumblr, but it really started before Tumblr. It started with live journal. Um, really? Yeah. Wow, I mean, Live Journal was not as toxic as Tumblr could be about it, but it, it, I could trace mm -hmm. like I remember having some of these debates in 2005, 2006 about like how you talk about. Um, oh, hey, Grimlock's here. There's no clue as to where this has gone so far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, um, it's gone all over the place. Yeah. Um, I have really lived up to my reputation about like Derek makes a point, talks about something tangentially related in history for 15 to 20 minutes that may or may not actually support his point, And then goes back to his first point. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you. Um, hey, folks, you bought that ticket. You know what kind of a ride you were in for. Yeah, the, I, I teach discursively and tangentially. Um, 
what what I will say though to get back onto the topic for a second is that um this whole cancel culture debate I think it was interesting that the Harper's letter came out when it did which was when there was a lull between the end of the BLM stuff and it being recuperated um by the media um and and you started seeing people getting rich off of it frankly yeah, um, was, was that June or July? That was July. It was like end of June, July. And I was like, I'm like, it's a perfect time when things are stalled. Yeah. To bring this shit back up again. Because it, it the Harper's letter, well, how do you feel about it one way or the other, had nothing to do with the shit that had happened for the past six months. Like, yeah. Like, I'll be honest with you, that was a time period. I was talking to Ben Burgess about this actually privately. And I was like, look, during. During the period from right before COVID to right after um, BLM, none of us talked about cancel culture. And that's when it also moved from being kind of a an interleft debate where right-wingers sort of picked up on it to being like, now they use it to label anything they dislike. Um, you know, and... I find that fascinating. I was talking about, you know, the problems of call out and canceling in 2014. Right. But I was also warning people that like a lot of people who are more successful at canceling are the right. And they don't ever get talked about. Like, I don't no. like, yeah, I don't like what Sui Park did over the cancel Hope Co. Bill. I thought it was totally decontextualized. And when I've heard liberals talk about it, they actually don't talk about what the racist joke was actually aimed at doing, what the point was. Like, they, they cut all that out. Um, they also don't mention how much money Sui Park was making off of it. Like, she was really? bragging. Yeah, she was bragging that she was making, like, um, $20,000 a month doing um, diversity trainings Christ, and Patreon money. Right. Um, what happened to her though is really fucking tragic. So she starts getting all these death threats and starts getting shut out herself. Yeah. Um, and she basically becomes a weirdo church lady. Um, really? That part yeah. I did not hear. That's, that's yeah. I mean a progressive yeah. weirdo church lady, but she like, um, you know, wow. That's yeah. So, so, so what my point at the time, and I didn't know all this at the time, but I was just like, look, the counseling problem is ridiculous on the internet. And from a person observing from another country, it looks like a way big deal. Mm. Um, because I was watching from Mexico, I wasn't here on the ground, but I was like, I suspect the rights can actually get away with actually counseling people better. Cause they always do. Like I remember, in the 90s they wouldn't shut up about pc culture you know and then and immediately after 9-11 like who actually got shit canceled it was yeah. right-wingers and they successfully did it yeah it went from uh God, i'm just just the, yeah the two things that are popping up in my mind is both uh well freaking out about pc culture just that as because my parents had a subscription to Newsweek, so I remember that Newsweek call, uh, cover about like thought police in like you know in like this you know gr uh, gray bold uh, thick text, but also it's and then fast forward ten years later in terms of like right wing uh, canceling and a freaking 
denunciation and ostracism because I'm I I just re- I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a <laughs> I'm gonna make an, an oath not to say the word cancer culture but to call it like yeah ostracism and uh, and denunciation mm-hmm. um, but just them going after the Dixie Chicks yep. and to the point where that you know it it didn't exactly kill their career but it damaged it hard right I was I I listened to uh, what is it um. I, it's one of the liberal shows I actually like. Uh, you're wrong about um, those guys are kind of good stuff. They do good work actually, even though they're not, they're not totally liberal. But yeah, they're, they're. I mean, they're not full on left, but yeah, they're. Uh, yeah, they're good work. They do good. I work. mean, Sarah Marshall's an anti-capitalist, but I think also like what that means to her is not particularly clear. Yeah. Um, Sarah's also. A, she's also a Portlander, I believe. Yep, she is. Um, but I, I, I'm not. I don't want to like have all my left squad go after them because I actually sincerely enjoy their show. Yeah, um, it, their show is worthwhile, folks. If you can check their show out called "You're Wrong About," especially the episodes they will do about shit like the Satanic Panic. Which yeah, is, uh, Sarah is writing a book about. Sarah actually, um, she actually did say it was interesting. She pushed back on the narrative that counseling, cult, the council culture, isn't real. Um, but she also said it was so unimportant and it really is really only an anxiety of media figures, which I kind of think is true. Um, I think it's a real anxiety for media figures. And I also think ironically, she has noted that it really only works on people who are sincerely left adjacent. Yeah. Like if you try to cancel someone who's actually right wing, you just made their career for them and then they can fake how much you canceled them and write it. You know, they, they bring up how much like Christina House Summers has done this. She's done this, though, for like 30 fucking years. Like, yeah. I remember her doing this in the 90s. Yeah, she I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Is, yeah, she did this. At, fuck, I'm reading. What the hell am I reading? I think I'm reading um, uh, Andrew Hartman's book on, on the culture wars because Andrew gets into uh, for those of you who have seen who have both listened to my own show giving the mic to the wrong person, but also has, has seen uh, Andrew's interview on This Is Revolution. Uh, he wrote a great book that has recently been revi- uh, updated called, oh, I don't remember what it's called, but his book on culture war, but he actually gets, there's a chapter about that where he talks about Christina Hoff Summers and Christina Hoff Summers, like her career, or at least her social media presence was revived by, of all things, fucking Gamergate. And she became based mom. And so she's still around, you know, much like how uh, fucking Charles Murray comes back. Um, Christina Hoff Sarvis com- comes back as now like this kind of like based mom uh, character for the alt-right idiots. Yeah, I mean, she she she's always been able to do that. And she always still claims that she's like actually really a leftist, blah, blah, blah. But they've gone to, she, she's claimed that for like 40 years. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was a, paleoconservative i used to read her like and take it seriously and the only point she ever made that hit was about schools and that is how uh schooling um has like negative success rate for boys um Hmm. and that's actually true by the way like um men boys and men tend to do better in stem based fields but they're such a small percentage of who does well in school that it actually doesn't wash out um but the weird issue is like well she's like we need to focus on culture about boys but weirdly when i was in ed liberals took her arguments on that seriously and nothing else because they had actual Hmm. um data to support it like my liberal teachers like yeah we do have a problem 
with the education of boys, even though higher education, particularly as you go up further and further, um, becomes more and more masculinized. Um, and that the leadership of schools is still largely male. Um, I like Very Bad Wizards has come up. Her son, her son does a good, her stepson does a very good podcast, Very Bad Wizards. They actually plugged me once when I was talking shit about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ah, so what's, I, what, what's the, what's the, what's the show about? Uh, it's basically moral psychology stuff. They do kind of, they skirt the line. They try to be the woke anti-woke. I don't know how to say like, like that any clearer than that, mm. but they do stuff on moral psychology and then philosophy and psychology together. It's very analytic, um, very social psychology based, but they're not stupid people at all. And actually the podcast is quite enjoyable. Um, yeah. th they're left liberals. Um, well, that helps. You know, they're not bad. Uh, but every now and then they do talk about annoying student moral panics. But then they talk about how that's really only an elite university problem, which, again, I think that's what I would say, too. I'm like, yeah, I mean, people at Anhurst are always weird. Like, and, and have always been weird, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's communists that teach a bunch of super privileged kids. That's also true at Brown. It's, But that's not the experience of even most college students. So, um, anyway. Yeah, well, real quick, I need uh, let me. Uh, I need to quick take a quick break. Can you solo for a minute? Let me. And let yeah, me I can solo for a second. Um, Jeremy will go away. Bye, Jeremy. All right, so now you have my giant head. Um, oh wow! As soon as Jeremy drops away, we hit our highest uh, numbers. Um, I'm going to take this second to talk about the future of Varnvlog because I'm kind of. During July, I'm going to overproduce a lot for you guys. Um, <laughs> he was too quiet. Um, I don't have control over the mix with this operating software. Um, it basically equalizes it out. It's a lot of why, actually, um, I do a whole lot of stuff uh, for the podcast and post-production um, where I have a lot of sound and volume equalizers put on because this streaming software um, doesn't really have a mixer that I can control. Um, yeah, I can control, I can control my mix, but not his. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, so, and we're losing listeners. Um, where's Varnbog going? So I said, I've been saying I'm going to do more, more cultural stuff. I think that's going to start. I'm actually planning on doing some stuff on appendix and RPGs. I'm planning on doing some stuff on high art movies. Um, I'm planning on hot seat, choose Varnblog or pop the left for Patreon support. I get the money for Varnblog. I would tell someone to, I would never tell someone not to support uh, Pop the Left, um, but I get the money from Varnblog directly. And Jeremy's back. All right. All right. Hang on. Am I still low or do I need to? Uh... You sound good to me, but how does that, how do you sound to everybody else? Everybody can hear. How's how does that sound? Or do I need to jack up my uh, my? Do I need to jack up the volume there? Oh, and now you're loud. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. 
right. Stalker okay, uh, Solaris review was interesting. I've done podcasts on Stalker, actually, just not for former people. Um, if you look, check out Satarian Review. We're slowly going through, in a course of about five years, um, all the Tarkovsky movies. I have now done uh, Nostalgia, um, Stalker, Solaris, Andrei Rubilev. Um, I have yet to do Mirrors, which is Shalom Bantine's favorite uh, Tarkovsky movie. Um, and another couple that I haven't done yet. But I've done most of the major ones um, over there at Sectarian Review. I didn't do them for former people because former people has been defunct for five years um, until we tried to bring it back. And no one supported it. Um, former people I don't think I actually listened to because I think you you quit you stopped that before I was listening to a lot of like left pods so oh uh, former people also wasn't originally a left pod former people was like me and and a Catholic talking about art so it was actually quite interesting a Catholic <laughs> Catholic. Lord but like a fairly traditionalist Catholic uh, oh, a, a former <laughs> yeah a, the Tradcath in the morning from uh, it was actually from five to twelve. It's actually somewhat the opposite of me. He was he was a Marxist who became more and more Catholic, and I am a former paleo conservative who's become more and more radical over time. But we didn't talk about social stuff. Um, and Doug Lane was involved with former people for a brief while until um, I asked him to leave, and we're just not going to talk about that. Uh, um, right. <laughs> Uh, so we don't mention the many the many denunciations of Tuck and Far. Yeah, we don't we don't talk about that in polite company. <laughs> um, as a as a funny, we're totally off topic about rhetorical inflation, but actually, this is an example of rhetorical inflation. Um, uh, Doug and I were fighting over something that had nothing to do with anything, and then like we started arguing about Hegel, and we used that as a justification for cutting ties. Um, That's a, I've <laughs> I have I have been at a I have been at a at a table in a bar in a restaurant where the two of you talk, and God damn it, does sound like two people who you know two like old high school friends review you know looking back over like twenty years of both like high school you know like talking about high school shit, and God damn if it's not like you know like old revived high school arguments and shit yeah i mean it is a lot like that um although i didn't know doug until i was 30 so um but yeah i mean a lot of it had to do with like a lot of the stuff around occupy mm. and doug and i going in different ways around it um uh, Doug became more and more of a Marxist humanist. I became more and more of a left communist and we were fighting over um, how pop the left was being edited um, to make me more copacetic to MHI. And um, wow, then we seems extreme to uh, I, when I edit, I just take out like ums and uhs. I don't like, I don't edit for. Uh, oh, I, yeah. There's uh, lots of editing for content with, with Varn and, and Doug stuff. Oh. Um, so that actually stopped with Pop the Left because we live streamed it. Ah, and, okay. and so Pop the Left is not edited nearly as much anymore. Um, 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, and that's all I'm going to say about it because I've already done denunciations of me. That's what MHI stood for for the for you for yeah. those of you listening in. Yeah, see, Jeremy is is a professional here, and um, you guys should listen to his podcast. It doesn't get enough love. I'm going to go ahead and say that right now. Um, so, uh, I, I've noticed you've been you've been like been able to get yourself back into production lately. Uh, ironically, even though you have less time, um, so. Yeah, that's that's well. I, I went from being unemployed for most of last year to being employed again, and that's one. Um, that was one of the ironies of when a lot of like you know because so many uh, media types are talking about you know the the threat of quarantine is like oh hey you know everybody's gonna be at home so like those of you you know hey all you other media types you you know you'll finally have a chance to write that novel that you'll be talking about or you, you'll write your own version of King Lear and shit and uh, turns out no um, being unemployed or being stuck at home during the middle of a mass pandemic with mass death fucking everywhere where you can't go out and you can't see your friends and you can't go to the diner or the movie theater is not so good for your creative outlet and uh funny how that works who knew yeah who knew um i mean honestly uh similarly jeremy like um i mean i will say that uh that i also had trouble with that i i wrote a book right before covid um and uh and finished it off during the first month of the pandemic. And I'm like, I'm going to do so much writing. I'm, you know, I'm writing a book on Christopher yeah. Lash. I did, I did do so much reading for that book. I, I did do that. Um, and I talked to my co-author and we rewrote the introduction five times and then realized like, why are we starting with the introduction? We haven't finished the book yet or even all of the research. Um, yeah. And no, I've found that I'm more productive the more work I have weirdly. Like, um, that does lead me into spirals of overwork as people have noted. Um, because like the people are like, well, how do you have it? How do you have a day job and then show up on more podcasts than people who do it professionally? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, I, don't have, I, I have compulsion problems and yeah. uh, probably should go out more, spend more time with my partner and my dog. Um <laughs> Well, to be fair, you uh, when did you when did you finally adopt your uh, your fun basset hound? Oh, my basset hound was adopted about during the middle of I guess around January. Okay, let's see, because like yeah, you would for, so you yeah you've only you've only had that one around for a few months, so it's not like you had to spend most of uh, you had to like you know work uh, work it into your life like back during last year. Also, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, check out um, check out Derek's post on social media. He has an adorable basset hound, and I still hold the basset hound being the best of all dogs. Well, my basset hound is definitely the best of all dogs. He's silent. He's you guys. You don't know. Maybe I can show him to you. Uh, yeah, 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 there we yeah, go. Yeah. Podcast uh, buddy. He's always down he, 90% of the time that I'm down here. He is pretty close sleeping nearby. Um, he doesn't bark. He's like the quietest dog ever. Um, I, I know you guys are totally signed in to listen to me talk about my, 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 my cute hound dog, but like, I totally have a cute hound dog that I got during COVID. He keeps me sane. Um, and he keeps my partner, Kristen sane. So, uh, yeah. Um, it's pretty good. Um, 
Uh, mine is half Basset. We think half either Beagle or Harrier Hound because his ears are too short. And he's a little bigger than he should be for a Basset, but he also is not quite as droopy. Um, yeah. But he's still pretty. He's still pretty great. Best dog ever. Um, yeah, that's one of the, one of the disappointing things that COVID took from us is like not only were these canceled last year. I think I found out recently they were canceled this year in Oregon. They have originally they were called the Bassett Olympics, but I think they probably got a cease and desist. So now they're now switched to the Bassett Games, where I think these happen in different states. But yeah, there is definitely little uh, like every July there would be little like Bassett Hound meetups in like a park just south of Portland where. Um, one of the most gloriously ludicrous experiences you could ever have is to be in a park with like 40 to 60 basset hounds like competing in events like best howl or best costume where they tried to lead them through a little like obstacle course that of course the uh, most of the dogs don't really uh, feel the need to complete and um, yeah it's uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye how beautiful it is all right. So, uh, oh, as far as rhetorical inflation, you want you want to talk about rhetorical inflation? We need to say China conversation. I agree. Um, all sides of the China discourse right now make me kind of icky. Yep. Um, like, like they, they we've gone out of the realm of like reasonable cri- criticism, where you almost sound like you're pro- you're you're passing off State Department propaganda. But also, when people aren't doing that, they seem to be sounding like they're literally on the payroll of. The, of the CCP's business association. Yeah. So like, like what the I, fuck are you people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, can't you be, can you have like critical support or talk about all the struggles in China and talk about like, talk about the, there is real problems going on in nation building projects and China is very much engaged in the high period of one. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things we talk about. But we can't talk about them honestly right now because the, the the rhetoric around China is superheated and and like it makes me feel weird about dealing with um, certain things that I know actually that I know for a fact because you know I lived in Asia for so long I've mm-hmm. I, I've actually devoted a lot of time to studying China I've known a lot of people who are professional sinologists um, one of my best friends in Korea was a professional sinologist and. I don't feel like I can have an honest conversation about China without accidentally giving one side or another that I don't want to have a talking point, a talking point. Yeah. And and if I, you know, and honestly, I'd rather have the, I'd slightly rather have the pro China side have a talking point, but they also get so ludicrous on their claims that I don't really know what to do. Um, and I partly think that's because, again, we're in a time period where China's done pretty well in regards to its COVID response. Its 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 economy is doing better than the West, but it's not doing as good as it historically was. And that's still not it's not something people are dealing with. They're like six percent growth is great. I'm like, but six percent growth is the same as the West in the '60s, um, and we are about at the same historical time point. Hmm. You know, I, I kind of think, you know, nation state projects are just kind of bad to begin with, but I don't want to encourage like xenophobia or, or, you know, and, and when we're dealing with nation states as they currently exist, um, frankly, you want normalization of U.S.-China relations. You really do. 
Yeah. Like, I think it's irresponsible to advocate anything other than that. Um, and yeah, I think post uh, someone saying Cuba's pretty cool, and that's about it. I, I, I tend to like post Castro, Cu- post Fidel Castro Cuba a lot. Um, and even Fidel's late period wasn't too bad. There's some there's some iffy stuff in the 80s, um, and the 70s, but. Uh, yeah, they weren't they weren't necessarily that good with uh their their queer populations for a while yeah but to to his credit uh i mean fidel didn't apologize for that and said like he was much more worried about well he was he was he, i think he, he his his comments on it were that he was busy trying not to be killed by americans and he kind of like overlooked that particular part so yeah yeah sure but it's it's not like i guess during the same period it was not it's not like um here in america we treated our uh our uh our our queer and trans uh population that well given um when certain epidemics started but uh loa edition what are they talking about i do not know um okay uh, what are your thoughts on democratic centralism? What version of it? Um, I heard you talk about it with Tom Brown, an episode about the Manier book, but I don't quite get it. Democratic centralism is generally that you are allowed to express your dissenting opinions within a political group. But when the democratic vote is cast, you follow the, um, the majority. I think all at, at a basic principle level, all democracies are, are centralists like this. I actually think that's just the way democracy works. Hmm. However, democratic centralism as t- interpreted even by the SPAY day. And I'm, so we can't blame this on the dirty Leninist. This is in the DNA of the SPAY day um, led to the suppression of dissenting opinions so that people didn't know how people in the party actually vote voted. So for example, Lenin always accused Kowski of voting for war credits. That's not true. We didn't know that for a long time, however, because the documents of the vote were not released. Be, um, even though they were recorded for democratic centralist reasons, because they did not want to show dissension with the party norms. And that actually split the party. So what has happened with democratic centralism in the past is this ban that's usually used to lead to a ban on factions. All right. That's what it actually ends up doing most of the time. And that's bad. Um, It leads to two things. And the Trotskyists are, and sometimes the left comp scenario, it leads to people splitting over minor differences over and over and over again, because you, because you cannot in good conscience stay with the majority of the group because you can't express your dissenting opinion. So you must split in the case of sock and Stalinist orgs. It leads to purges and the sock case. It leads to unofficial purges and shunning. And in the Stalinist case, well, I mean, purges is a lot more literal. Um, because you cannot have factions develop. What that tends to actually do is mean that there's a de facto faction in control purging all the other factions. And that faction doesn't actually have majority support. It just has a polarity of support and no other faction can approach it. And it tends to also be stultified. So you see this in Trotskyist and Stalinist parties where because of the centralist and because of open voting, you have the same people democratically in charge in perpetuity um 
Yeah. Can, can we, uh, well, can you talk comment on Demsent as a thing of, say, modern Western US, UK uh, leftist groups that are still holding to uh, to, to that and how that how that um, uh, manifests? It's largely irrelevant to modern Western political parties, except for the fact that it keeps a small cadre in sectarian organizations in control. Okay. Um, uh, Dimsent bans tend to be a relic of anti-communist periods. However, I will also say that democratic centralists within non-democratic centralist organizations tend to lead to splits. So mm. there is a non-anti-communist reason to be wary of them. But I've always found it interesting, for example, in the DSA, right now there's an invocation of anti-Dimsent rules against the trots, but not against Stalinists. Mm-hmm. That's true, but how many? Uh, I, will, I will say how many. How many Stalinists do we have joining? Uh, you know, joining the you know the uh, the evil sock dims that are the uh, idiots like me and DSA. Um, plenty. the 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 FRSO took over a lot of a lot of the Utah chapter of the DSA. Oh wow! That, so that, that's the that that uh, that's different. So there's a lot more than you think. Also. Um, Bashkosh and Kara did argue for a popular front with, Stalin, with Stalinists included, but with the Sock Dems in charge this time, um, which Charlie Post wisely advised him uh, was was probably not smart. Mm. Um, uh, so, I mean, if people read those debates, Bashkosh is good about publishing all that stuff openly. Um, I'm not particularly worried about, about the DSA banning factions because the moment it did so, it would immediately fall apart. <laughs> like yeah. no comment on that one. Me being a uh, a uh, you know a still uh, active DS mate. DSA yeah, now. you're a dirty roser. Yeah, that, um, that's how it goes. Well, we were at we we're at ninety minutes. Uh, one last yeah. thing, uh, that I think I did want to ask about because we are the topic is still ostensibly rhetorical inflations and declining states. <sighs> Let uh, in terms of rhetoric. Can you talk about class reductionism, both uh, yes. as a concept, but more importantly, how it is used and weaponized? Because, as and this is one of those things where I think uh, talking to Freddie DeBoer is probably worthwhile because Freddie has written about critique creep and, uh, you know, how these, like, you know, these what were once useful terms, once they hop from, uh, from academia into social media, kind of get vulgarized and spread apart and ground down to meaning. So, so yeah, um, class reductionism was a critique of the classical um, uh, CPUSA's position, even though they also did a lot of anti-racist work, mm. that you would have to subsume uh, racial interest to class interest. This was even a bigger deal in the uh, SPA, where there was a lot of um, a lot more chauvin explicit chauvinist uh, factions. One may even say uh, proto Nazbol and right populist factions within the SPA itself. SPA, um, from, uh, what what era are we talking about? Uh, uh, early <laughs> early twentieth century, so like nineteen ten. Okay, yeah. yeah. Debs <laughs> actually pushes back on a lot of this um, explicitly. Um, so like Debs follows the you know the Second International line about um, opposing uh, jingoistic uh, socialism. Um, which was the uh, phrase used at the time. Um, 
but they didn't kick those people out. They just made sure they didn't dominate uh, the leadership. Mm. Um, um, class reductionism right now tends to be workerism. Um, which I actually do think is a problem, but it's not actually class reductionism. That is taking workerist lifestyle points and valorizing them as if it was an essential trait of the working class um, and an essential trait of the proletariat. And a lot of times, actually, that's like just blue collar shit and, yeah. um, and also kind of anachronistic. Uh, I do think that's a problem. Um, and that's something that I used to talk about class reductionism about, but I actually, ironically, and I say this a lot and people don't get the joke, it's not class reductionist enough. However, what I have seen is people saying that people who have a class first analysis of say race, um, are denying racial disparities and whatnot. And I'm like, how would anyone who had an honest an analysis of say, uh, the way class intersects with race not acknowledge that generational debarment from the acquisition of even proletarian wealth through slavery and then political debarment from from even proletarian levels of of quasi property ownership or participation in the formal economy through Jim Crow is not class related or racialized. Like if someone did that, they're fucking morons. Um, and very few people do. There are a few people on the anti-left on the anti-left socialist who actually do make such claims. Um, I think, I think they're nationalists and I think we should call them for that. I don't think calling them class reductionists is particularly helpful yeah. because it's not even a class reductionist analysis. It's more of a cultural workerist one. And so what you have, and I actually think there's a converse to this in the PMC debates, frankly, is a culture war being fought under faux class terms. Um, and so it can be easily weaponized for liberals to shut class you know, uh, class discussions up um, or to to flatten them out. Yeah. Um, conversely, mm -hmm. I was say social uh, somebody talked about how the social media flattens all uh all distinctions and all contexts it's it's you know it's it, it it you know at some point it just becomes either or it can't be a gradient but please continue yeah um um a dsa mpc member called fred hampton uh quoted from hampton was called class reductionist well i mean fred hampton would have would have been actually probably tarred as a class reductionist given some of what he said um can you tell where, how some like Adolf Reeves writing interviews of class reductionism are imprecise, et cetera. I think uh, one of the issues with Adolf Reed is he has a more precise definition of PMC than uh, Barbara Ehrenreich are most of the people on the left to use it. He actually means specifically people with a fiduciary responsibility who aren't petite bourgeois, but are also not part of um, either the productive social circuit or I mean, he basically he means people like doctors and financial advisors and very high level management, not even common middle management like you're dealing yeah. with. Whereas um, Barbara Ehrenreich, when, when asked about this, about what she meant by the uh, the phrase or the term, just as she said, uh, you know, she just meant was referring to snooty professionals, which, you know, yeah, that 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 tracks. This okay. The superstructure podcast made something like Varn's PMC workers and comparisons. I think 
there is a mutual exchange between the ra the, the radical humanities uh um uh, MMT versus and Varnland, even though I think our economics are are sometimes copacetic and sometimes diametrically opposed. Um, um, Adolf Reed said we should give up on the DSA. Well, I mean, if Reed what, said it, you well, know, yeah, it was. Just, it's also it was like, I don't know, dude. It's, I mean, <laughs> biggest org we got right now. So, um, I mean, yeah, but that in a way though, you have a problem. You have a problem that that like your biggest org is still fucking tiny, yeah. like, and w the rhetorical inflation games and in all factions of the DSA has just escalated. And you would tie this back in, but it really is like the class reductionism versus, um, you know, wokeism accusations have just gone up. The the, the calling people um, ultra leftists, there are people in relatively high up in the DSA calling fucking MMTers ultra leftist. What the hell? Like that's insane. Okay. Um you have people talking about mutual aid being an ultra left activity because it's not politically relevant while also ignoring the fact that's most of what the DSA actually does. Yeah, we're out um, here yeah, we're I mean I, I just to speak for Portland DSA, the amount of shit we've done for I don't know, wildfire supplies and helping people. Fuck. We had a God. It was 115 degrees on Sunday in Portland. Not, you know, not to mention all what, what everybody else and all the other groups up and down the West coast have been trying to do to, to cope with this shit. It's like, yeah, shut the fuck up. But yeah, I mean, so, so who, the, the thing is anybody can find, I, you can find someone in the DSA saying there are people in the DSA who are communizers. I mean, like, because it because it's still so large and it's so clearinghouse and I, I refer to it as our sectarian clearinghouse organization. Right? Yeah. Um, there there's people in the DSA, even probably people close to the national, who hold positions that you can tack on anything. The yeah. the issue the DSA has is uh, that or the the national eats up a disproportionate amount of its funds. No comment. Uh, um, most of whom go to paid staffing, which they need, and to consultants for which we don't really know what they're using them for. I'm guessing I'm gonna get no comment on that, but that that's from the DSA's own records that, that you yeah. can find if you look on their Patreon. I don't know why they make it so hard to find. It is public, but it is not easy to find. But um, the the last issue that they have is that their dues are probably too low. I, I know that's maybe a controversial position. Um, I, I like keeping dues low, but if you, if you literally have to keep your paid staff, which to be fair, most of it is not paid very high um, is so much of your proportion of your, of your national budget. Um, and you don't really have a lot to do anything. So locals have to have to turn over their own fee structures in addition to what you're charging nationally, but it's yeah. wildly inconsistent from chapter to chapter. Um, you have a serious problem. Yeah. Um, um, also, the DSA caucuses, who even knows what they even do? Um, I mean, they represent ideological tendencies, but what, what actual 
effect they have on the DSA national is unclear to me. And I'm studying the structure of the DSA. I find that I'm learning more than most DSA members learn. Um, Jeremy also, you know, tolerates the fact that I will always talk shit about, you know, usually the major left wing org. Um, I do not chastise people for being involved in it, nor do I tell people to become involved in it. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that right now I have no idea how the DSA can possibly function aside from the Democrats. I know there are people in the DSA who want to, mm. even in the DSA national who want to, but their means of doing so without splitting the DSA back into the sectarian factions that already existed. Yeah. It's hard to say. Um, yeah. Rotary clubs may do more charity work than the DSA. I mean, to be fair, DSA locals do a lot. But they do it on their own dime, yeah. And um, also, yeah. Also, Rotary clubs pull from a uh, pull. As I I say this as someone who actually looked into what the fee structure for our the local Rotary club was, and like, wow, I'm uh, I am really not employed well enough to uh, to be a member of that. But um, oh, but before we get too uh, too far into uh, into DSA criticism land. One, one of the things, uh, just to finish up on the class reductionist take, one of the things I want to ask, well, I want to ask because I'm always interested in the, in, I, I don't know, psychological or functional questions is what function is the slam of class reductionist serving? Like, what is like what what work is that doing or like what role is that you know why has it been weaponized and what you know in what role does it do it it serves to to be able to call someone um adjacent to white supremacists without saying so mm. um because workerist institute I, I saw this today I'm going to shit on the NEA for a second because I'm in it. Um, the NEA had a leading survey that was clearly put out to decide if its membership was conservative or liberal on race. And it asked things for, do you think poverty is the biggest driver of educational inequity slash not race basically and do you think racism is a problem in america and how do you feel positively and negatively about each of the races and it asked that to a fucking union that's um that, that seems a bit that <laughs> seems a bit much it, you know but it was clearly leading into a we have two narratives and you're going to accept either the democratic and, and then like it's political options. Are you liberal? Very liberal, conservative, very conservative or independent, whatever that means. Um, so now Will's here. Um, so, you know, it's a clearly leading, it's a clearly leading, uh, thing and i had no idea like i had trouble responding to it because like of course i think race is a, a driver of inequity in education i fucking teach right. but i also think poverty is not the only correlation it's not but it's it's actually a bigger one than than race um unless you think that race you know race alone is a cause of poverty hmm. um because roughly the success rates of racial groups tie into their relative wealth, relative wealth. 
you know, and society. And so how do you disaggregate that? Um, and I also think leading people about your positions about specific racial identity groups is like asking people to, to, to adopt uh, a more, a more racialized and probably racist framework. Um, so not great, not great at all. Um, because it also puts it where like, what is like the, what is the, NA, the NEA's job to be anti-racist or to support the workers? And I'm like, well, you support the workers by being anti-racist, but like, don't put this as a binary where I have to choose between the two and you're no. in, in your, and literally one of them is in your job description. And one of them's, one of them is kind of part of it, but not. Like, what do you, what do you think you're going to get from this? So I can't tell if the NEA, the NEA is trying, and there's a national survey trying to justify a more conservative term on race or trying to justify adopting uh, a Biden narrative or both at the same time, depending, I have no idea. Um, so, you know, um, so what does class reductionism really do? I mean, it serves a lot of functions. Um, I also think though, conversely, and I know you're going to, you, this made you uncomfortable. I think a lot of people who hear the class reductionist moniker and respond to it actually will sometimes adopt reactionary points of view because it's also called a called class reductionist. I think it becomes a mutually const uh, constitutive identity category. Hmm. Um, for example, the bellows. Oh, I think there's a lot of people who I knew who had fairly innocent and innocuous views about about class who started getting into Bellows bullshit after they got called class reductionist. I do not think it was something they thought before that. Hmm. You the 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 idea that and this is one of these things about mutually constitutive identity categories and and rhetorical inflation is it has an effect on both sides. It, eventually people tend to become what you're calling them. Um, the same is true, by the way, with shit libs and talking about shit libs all the time is it actually encourages shit lib behavior. Like I don't do that. I don't do it for a reason. I don't throw class reductionism out. I don't, I don't talk about wokeism either. And I don't, you know, I don't talk about like shit libs all the time because they're mutually reinforcing identity categories. They're a way to fight a culture war while pretending you're doing something else. Yeah. And they reify a lot of bad shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bellows is just Coolette light. I would not even go that far. I think sometimes they're way more pernicious than Coolette is, frankly. Um, you kind of know oh, what Coolette is up to. Plus, they're not Canadian. Yeah. Um, it, it must be coming to. You know what? I would love to believe, guys, that all left idiocy was actually the State Department. But one, I know how bureaucracies work. They're not that good. And two, I know a lot of you guys. You're not paid by the feds. Now, here's the thing that I'm going to say. I think left groups, if they ever got more important like they were in the 70s, and this is one of the reasons why I, I, I kind of push back on people on the current left narrative being like a super big a super big threat to contemporary power is you're not infiltrated like they were in the 60s and 70s yet there are there i i bet there are feds in every group you know 
but I, I also think they probably don't matter. They're probably not doing very much. They're probably just keeping notes. Yeah, as I say, the um, at a certain point is like that's that's part of that's part of the uh, part of the um, the issue with COINTEL Pro being I don't want to say so popularized, but because it became a thing, so it, beca- it became this um, almost like a scapegoat of like oh shit you know hey our leftist group would have been working just fine had it not been for those meddling feds <laughs> and not realizing that like hey wait a minute maybe there are certain tendencies among leftist groups because um one of the things that i don't think um we emphasize well we or we talk about is because uh you know hey um you know Capitalism immiserates people, so therefore, you know, and as a result of that, miserable people will want to fight back against that. It's kind of a thing of like, or similarly with like traumatized people, is that, um, hey, um, you have a lot of like traumatized people who might not have fully processed their immiseration and their trauma as they, but they really will really want to do the work and some of the, uh, the bad habits and the bad, uh, the bad coping mechanisms kind of like, you know, haven't really been dealt with and show up doing, doing the work. So that become, you know, like the feds don't have to do shit. They just have to like, you know, just step, uh, you know, just, you know, step back and let, you know, certain natural processes, you know, play out and the, uh, and like clockwork, the, the group will destroy itself. I was about to say the only exception to that, when I looked at all the COINTELPRO stuff from the sixties were the American Nazi party and the black Panthers. Um, and, and, uh, I think you're right about that. Like if you read the book, heavy radicals and it's secret, one is put by uh, zero books. The other is by repeater press. So I'm not just plugging my press here. My press, I don't own fucking zero, but <laughs> the press I work for um, the, th- those books, even though they try to make an argument, the RCP was crawling and feds and brought it down. They, their actual proof is basically the CPUSA and the RCP were infiltrated by the feds. And all they did was, push people to make public distinctions that they were saying privately or tried to bait them into violent acts. Yeah. Which by the way, is the best sign of someone's a fed. If they're trying to get you to do something really stupid, aggressive, like, which is what, yeah, which I think as, as limited uh, as Judas and the black Messiah was as a film and depicting this stuff, I think does come, does show up in this film because later on in the film, when uh, the Ryan O'Neill character encounters like other Panthers who were feds, like who were encouraging the shit. So, yeah, I actually thought that that, that that movie did an okay job of it. What I thought I didn't like is when it portrays a uh, informant too ambivalently um, and yep. to, um, but a bigger, I think actually a bigger deal. It underplays how much the drug, um, trade and culture was complicating what the Panthers were doing. That was why they couldn't tell a lot of who was getting killed by whom for what. Yeah. Um, well, also the fact that everybody in the film was, was all the actors in the film were portraying real life people a decade to 15 years younger than the actors themselves were. Yeah. That's also, there's that problem. There's, um, I think another problem in that movie is like, they kind of touch on it on the drugging of Hampton, but they don't go into how 
how bad it was because a lot of the Panthers actually talk about that was the feds in was um, all the drugs flowing through the, the area. That's how they were able to get their informants in yeah. um, and their poison in um, literally in this case. Um, and the, the other thing that it kind of ignores is Ioki, you know, because it makes the left look real bad. Um, but Ioki was San Fran, wasn't he? Or yep, he was, and it's okay. it's different. But it's actually the the feds were also crawling in the in the um in the Panthers um gun uh accusations that the feds were feeding them guns okay. as a pretext to to clamp down on them. They didn't do that to other left groups. So I mean, this is one of the things that like tells you how how scary they really found the Panthers um, because with the RCP there was a person shot with the RCP by a local cop when the when the feds actually backed away from it um it, and it looks like the feds uh um yeah also pascal's right that they don't talk about how much money is flowing through all that um they only kind of bring it up as a side point in the end but it was a lot of money um but in, 19, in 1969 dollars yeah um but i will also say that uh um, it what of the portrayals of the Panthers I've seen in movies, and there's been a bunch. There was a bunch this year. It was the least shitty. Like, um, mm -hmm. yeah, the performances were great. The cinematography was great, and it um, didn't lie a lot. Like, it kind of lied, but it didn't lie a lot. Which, yeah, I mean, like, what was the the Panthers in the uh in the Aaron Sorkin? Oh my god, like phew, that movie. Yeah, um, um, yeah. No comment on that because I have not actually seen the film, but uh, that's a, that's a thing for uh, for uh, Jason and Pascal to comment upon. Yeah. A correction: Alfred said we should give up on the left. Ed Alfred suggested that that we should not play center. This is after here or after hours on Tuesday. You really gotta. You have to leave if you're if it's a comment that's like twenty words. You do have to leave that up on screen for at least a couple seconds. You can't. All right. It. Whatever. Thank you. All right. Um, tips. What does that mean? I mean, when when Adolf Fried says abandon the left, that motherfucker still voted for Hillary Clinton publicly. I don't know. It's that's I don't know. That's the I don't know. It's um, the um, I mean, I I actually yeah. respect Adolf Fried, but when I say like I get mad when we see stuff like this and I'm like, but like, you're not even asking us to leave the Democrats. Like, what do you want us to do? Uh, what is, um, oh, I can't remember his name. Who, uh, what's, uh, what's, what's Shuja haters older brother name wrote the book starts with an A Assad hater. Yeah. Assad hater. Cause like Assad has, uh, in a couple of several interviews over the last couple of years has talked about the uh, the one thing to remember about oh, Adolf Fried's writing is that Adolf has been he's been trapped in academia for a long ass time. And that might have like colored some of his uh, some of his thinking in terms of like like who he's pushing back against. So I feel I, I, that happened with Christopher Lash for sure. And he said something similar about abandoning the left, but also he was talking about the eighties democratic left explicitly and made that yeah. clear. Slight, um, slight difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, I don't know, man. I mean, like, like, look, 
I used to take the left communist stance that we should abandon the left of capital too, until I really thought about it. And like, well, who's not the left of capital now? Like, seriously. Um, and I, so I, I need to know who Adolf Reed means by that. Um, it does sound an awful lot like she who will not be named um, talking points. And yeah. we shall always refer to her as that because I don't want to deal with that shit. Yeah, um, well, yeah, it, it, Cthulhu slash Voldemort. Also, uh, Eric, um, about Sorkin writing a Panther movie. Sorkin wrote uh, the the Chicago Seven, should have been Chicago Eight, but he uh, changed it. Uh, film, and uh, he also licensed. <laughs> uh, I mentioned this documentary before. Sorkin licensed the story of uh, Vidal versus Buckley. The nineteen sixty also a nineteen sixty eight story. Uh, he licensed the uh, he licensed that story to write a, to write a film about it. I don't think he ever did. So so it goes. I mean, one thing I'll say is if your idea of the left is the academic left, and that's who you're engaging with, um, those people are awful. I'm not gonna lie, they are. Like I've dealt with professors all my life. They're they're they they can be awful. And honestly, it's not even that they're leftists. It's not even that they're academics, even. It's that the culture of, of the university and America... You want to talk about inflation of rhetoric and self-importance to, to stakes? Yep. Holy shit. Um, however, uh, um, I, I think, one, hating on academics is too easy um, for a lot of this stuff. But it's fun. It is fun, but it's too easy. I also mm. think, like, um, I think it's an easy out. And when someone tells me to give up on the left, but they're still telling us to strategically vote for the Democrats, and they'll also call... I mean, Reed was right when he called out Angela Angela Nagel for got for being got-got for, you know, showing up with, with Malcolm Swayuna on, our, on every um, conservative podcast just to agree with them. Um... Or repeat, or repeat Tucker appearances. Right. Um, again, just to agree. I mean, like, even someone who I don't love, like George Sugarillo uh, Mar, people who might remember him um, yeah. from a few years back, uh, you know, did was not going on. He went on Tucker, but to argue with them, which I also think is stupid, but at least I can kind of respect it. Yeah. Like, a combative stance. Right. Like, um, you know, I don't know. So I, I get, so it, it feels weird for me to not, to hear that in context. I also think, how did Pascal respond to that? That I, I, I don't remember. I, um, I can't say you, we'd have to ask him. Oh, maybe he means giving up in the left in the platypus way, which is to do what exactly? Because the platypus way used to be to, um try to come up with a with a, a new left more like the old left um but being, being asshole contrarian online i don't know but, but but increasingly seems to be and i said this when i left before the trump scenario spiked spiked a rudite edition um you know uh um yeah. i mean like like the, the reason why i say that is while there are still a couple of plats I respect, like I, I do respect right, uh, Kane Reed Coltis and um, to some degree Pat Menegalis, uh, I don't hate uh, 
Chris Catrone, but by the logic that they condemn all of the left as being secret Democrats, most of the Platt membership will count as secret Republicans. If, if they applied the logic consistently to both sides, it actually washes out. If you, by their criterion, by which they judge a lot of left, because they've implied that I was a Democrat, which is wild. Um, uh, You're from the South, aren't you? <laughs> um, well, they also implied when I left that I was going to be a neoconservative, which is hilarious. So, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. But um, um, it's, it's, it's something that it's not, it, that's not a, like if, if they're, if their conception of like of fi finding the like they're right that that any revolution worth its name would have people in it who we would not consider leftists. That's actually completely true. Yeah. Um, but if the idea is we have to tail them to not tail the left's tailing of the Democratic Party, that's if the left's tailing of the Democrats is is makes them Democrats, then their tailing of populist right wing would make them Republicans by the same logic. I actually don't hold to that logic, but it's not my argument. I'm just applying their argument across the board. Oh, well then, okay. So this is very different. Thank you, John. If I recall, look, I think campaigning and reaching out to people who aren't necessarily already thinking of themselves as leftists. Duh. There's a limited capacity of people who think of themselves as leftists. But here's the thing. A lot of these phrases get thrown around in ways where, where one meaning is absolutely true and reasonable and another meaning is insane. And both critics and, uh, you know, proponents, proponents can abuse it. Like I'm sure people who will hear that and think that, um, uh, Reed agrees with she who will not be named. And I don't mean that's just in people who are critiquing Reed, but also people who agree with Reed. Um, this was also a problem with people and Nick Land and Mark Fisher. All right. Because Mark Fisher's rhetoric mirrored a lot of the rhetoric of the cathedral that Nick Land used. Um, and Thang Numina in particular. Um, and like other people, Fisher was inconsistent on whether or not he had an, uh, um, an economic or a cultural definition of working class. Some of that I think is a little bit more forgivable in the British context where there's still a medieval um, conception of, of uh, class written into the law. Um, Plus, yeah, also the one thing we always need to remember is that uh, shit over on Turf Island is just weird. You know, yeah, probably always will be. Uh, what even is the left in America? Because it seems like an empty signifier used to lambast anyone who isn't a chauvinist social democrat. I actually sometimes think so. Mm -hmm. Um, I, um, I, I, the left is an open signifier that can mean pretty much whatever the fuck anyone wants it to mean. Um, like, I mean, this is a problem. Like, anarcho primitist, left or reactionary? What does that even mean? Like, um, uh, Rosh Wolf and I had a, had a debate where like, we talked about whether or not, uh, jingoist leftism was a part of the left. And I said, well, traditionally it was seen as a right deviation of the left, but it was also seen as one of the dividing lines that you couldn't tolerate. 
you know, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, also, it is we are past two hours. Eating. Yeah, let's stop. Uh, it is what the fuck? It, it's ten thirty West Coast time. So let us. Uh, For those of you on the East Coast, why aren't you sleeping? <laughs> A lot of people out of work. I don't know. Or it's it's Thursday night. It's 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 party night. It's not. It's still a school night, but a Thursday night you can uh, you can stay out a, a little bit later. This says but. this says a a friend of mine who's an open Democrat. Um, was Marx wrong on the lumpen? Okay, I feel as lumpen is the only place where one can be. Try it. See what happens. That's yeah. That, that that's almost that's a, that's a that's almost that's. Shit, that's almost like reviving like Eldridge Cleaver type talk. Anyway, it but. is. It is what it is. Um, it's because people think that that you know violent action is the only thing it can mean to be a revolutionary. Um, and by the way, I wh where I actually push back on Marx is he uh, is like Lumpen doesn't have a clear definition. That that when he lists off who counts as Lumpen, some of it is like just people I don't like, um, like. I mean, honestly, um, so I would, I would say, uh, no, um, but Marx may not have been all that coherent on what Lumpen was. Um, but, uh, I will tell you for working with the homeless a lot, um, a good damn luck trying to use them as a, as a positive political force. Um, because their needs are so high and they're real needs and we need to address them and yeah. help them. Especially like, oh, especially during fucking heat waves. Right. But, and so I'm not saying they need to be cut out of the movement. I'm not one of those people who thinks like, oh, if you're a lump and you can't ever be a communist. I mean, that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think you have to help people not be desperate and that will probably decrease their alienated militancy. But alienated militancy is not the same thing as being an effective revolutionary or an effective political changer or any of that. Alienated mil militancy is actually generally a good way to get people and yourself killed. So, or at and, least in prison. Yeah, and that's bad. And on then on, on that note, let us uh, let's let's draw things quickly to a close. Yes, uh, Jeremy's telling me he's got to sleep. Um. <laughs> So I don't have to report to work uh, for another uh, 10 hours. So we're yeah. anyway, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm off right now. Um, oh, yeah, you're in, you're in some. All hour. right. So, um, although I still have to work, but anyway, yeah, I can just work on my own time. All right. Uh, we should also want to help the houseless because they're not. Yeah. I, I think we should want to help anyone who, I mean, as a side note, if someone's an asshole to drug addicts, to the to the homeless or houseless to I go back and forth from what nomenclature I think is actually useful. Um, sometimes I think houseless is a little bit euphemism is key, but unhoused? I get why I use it. Unhoused or houseless? Yeah, unhoused or? is okay, I guess. Unhome, I don't know. I guess they do have a home kind of, but it's was, I don't it, it, I don't like anything that lowers the Yeah. If anybody's being an asshole to them, uh I don't want to say glass them their ass, but if you have a spare uh, beer bottle, uh, there are worse targets you could wing it at. Hey, hey, now you know you sound like a Fed. Oh, um, oh yeah. 
<laughs> but parody, yeah, yeah. Parody satire, parody satire, Minecraft, Minecraft, Minecraft. Okay, there we go. Um, but um, is organizing around debt viable? Yes. For what? I would say yes, but you have to pivot it into something. Um, I, I think right now, what I will say is, uh, and that'll be my last, this will be the last topic because it has nothing to do with what we initially started on, but we're obviously in the responding to the, to the, yeah. to our favorite hoi polloi. Um, uh, debt is a, is a severe problem of working class life. However, it will actually help debt forgiveness will probably disproportionately go to um, middle class and upper middle class people. They have more debt. They don't have as much debt as a proportion. And if you means test it by any, by any way, you're going to be hyper unfair. I mean, by means test it with like not forgiving corporate debt or whatever, but or, um, or payday loan debt. Yeah. You know, anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think basically, you know, non-corporate debt, particularly to the government should be forgiven. Any other that should be organized around. Um, Real quick. That, that does remind me if you ever, um, I think it would be a worthwhile vid uh, for you to do, to talk to like Astra Taylor and uh, her friends in the debt collective about like the political economy of debt and, and fighting back through, uh, you know, holding back on, uh, on, you know, on like debt strikes and shit. Okay. Anyway, just suggestion. Um, I will say, however, that debt strikes are less effective than working strikes because they won't shut down capital. Hmm. They won't, they will not. Like if, if all debt was unpaid tomorrow, it would not probably matter that much. Particularly of small debt holders. Because what's actually moving everything is bank to bank debt. Um, and I think, I, but I do think there's a real political economy around that. You can have real power as a consumer um, by just saying no. I mean, honestly, uh, debt forgiveness programs work this way. Like basically like, I'm not going to pay it. What are you going to do about it? I'll reduce the debt load so you can pay it. So we recoup some of our money. That's yeah. normally what happens. It's great for the individual. Is it going to shut down capitalism? Absolutely not. Um, thoughts on Matt Chrisman. <laughs> you missed, you missed the discord chat earlier. Oh my God. Um, I have very complicated thoughts about Mr. Chrisman. Um, I, uh, but a lot of people want us to have this conversation um, and I don't want it to be a debate because in some ways, Matt Christman is one of the people in Chapo closer to me than anybody else in Chapo. I, I, yeah. I sincerely believe that, but I also think where we disagree, we're 180% a thousand yards apart. And I often think Matt is way too flippant. Um, uh, it's a rhetorical style thing and, and he, his flippancy will occasionally get him tied up into knots. Um, not own him on the PMC thesis. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's an entire other show. So yeah, these, yeah you know, stop asking, stop asking questions. It's, it's fucking, yeah. 
It's yeah, it's 1030 at night on the West Coast, people. What the hell? Yeah, for real. Anyway, let uh I think uh you're the one in ch- you're the one in charge of the stream. Uh it's I think it's time to shut it down. Uh anyway, thank you folks for uh tuning in and watching us yak about the shit for uh two hours plus. Uh my name is Jeremy. I host a show called Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Uh Derek has been has been gracious enough to uh guest on our show. Usually about uh, once a year, right? About once a year, yeah. We d- we did a great God, I think we did a three-hour conversation on conspiracy theory um, a couple of years ago that I think everybody should really check out, especially because at one point, the last third of that, we just talk about eco-fascism and the history of eco-fascism because of the fuckhead in Christchurch, and it's worth checking out. And, um, you know, no, we're not, no, we're not, we're not, no, we're not talking about Star Trek. No more Star Trek questions. That's another show. So yeah. anyway, uh, but yeah, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Uh, you should all join the uh, join the um, join the Patreon for this is a revolution. That's all I gotta say. It's like five, um, somewhere between three and five bucks. Yeah. All right. Uh, I would say join the Patreon of anyone who's any left podcast that you can join at their lowest membership level, including mine. If you want to give me more money, great. But spread it around. Um, we're basically all buskers here, and. Uh, Bus- Busker Sankara. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Bye bye. Night. Night.